you whipped out the maths on me on that one. <laughs> As they would say in English. All right. Should, should I get uh, David here on the horn Indeed. rather than continue to talk about inverse square laws? Please. It's, okay. They are kind of cool, though. <laughs> Let's see if this even works. Okay. Can you hear us, David? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can. Yay! I just, uh, <laughs> this is a an ongoing battle with Skype that we have where it continually resets the audio preferences, and we have kind of complicated audio routing here, and it... Um, Every time I go in, I have to go to the preferences. I have to change it back. And, uh, but it's the miracle of technology, as um, as Louis C.K. would tell us if he were here. Yeah, that's it, <laughs> that's it's right. amazing you that are, we're doing this at all. You are flying through the air and you are uploading things. And that's, that's right. right. Yeah. In a chair like a god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, David Ziff, thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for, for having me. I, I got to say, it feels a, a little weird talking about the, the Blue Book, given the, the recent news and the attorney general appointments and things like that. But uh, um, thanks for having me on. Well, that, it's funny you bring that up because we were uh, we were talking about the need to record a pre-roll here mm. um, because we're going to, you know, so, so with you, we're going to talk about something which is super fun, diverting, in some ways, totally pointless, but in other ways, really important, you know, because student writing is very important. It is. It, it, it's not as though this is a, a trifle. It's not a trifle, but but compared to like the continued existence of Western civilization, uh, all the things we've talked about. This it does seem like a bit of a trifle, yeah, doesn't it? I, I totally agree, and and I think, um, I mean, and even before the election and the stuff that's going on in the in the news now, uh, I think you have to have a little bit of of self awareness when you're writing a 27 page book review of a citation manual that <laughs> that you are doing something slightly silly, right? But we, we a book we review of a of a manual that came out two years ago. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will remain timely, though. Yeah. I think So we, we thought, though, that this was actually the perfect week for this. We did sort of a show which was in many ways kind of a downer last week, right, Joe? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we heard from people. We're not going to go through it now. We'll, we'll go back yeah. through our mailbag at some future point. But, you know. The show, was, the show was not a downer. Reality's a downer. Well, we couldn't ignore it. And it was like, we both didn't feel up for doing that again this week. Right. Would you yeah. say that's fair, Joe? Yeah. No, I want a nice, cool glass of refreshing, clear water. <laughs> David Ziff has provided us with that. Before we, before we move on to the, to the cool water, I, I listened to, to last week's show and I, I just uh, wanted to thank you for it. And, and as someone who's, you know, I'm, I am teaching this quarter and uh, you know, I've been talking to students about the election and what it means and what we can do and, and, uh, their reaction to it. And, and I thought it was just coming from a, another educator who's working at a law school. I, I thought it was useful. And uh, so thank you for that. Well, well, thank you for that. We we did get, you know, we heard from our longtime correspondent, Nicholas Georgiakopoulos, who pointed out something that the president had said overseas, which was very similar to your, um, Joe, when you're talking about MLK, you know, pulling on right. that, that arc. Yeah, the uh, arc doesn't bend unless you pull yeah, on so, it. So uh, he, he pointed that out and he had some additional questions actually from two years ago that we didn't get to or a year ago that we I need know. to get back to we, we, in a future mailbag episode. Yeah, we need to do better by Nicholas George I, I know, I know. Well, yeah, it's exactly, that's exactly right. And then earlier in the week, we also got uh, an email from a student who was a bit taken aback by our reference to 9-11. And I totally understand it. I mean, it's, that is a, like, like many such things, uh, it was, I think, particularly triggering for this student. Like, if you're going to invoke that, you better approach it with the right amount of gravity. And, of course, you know, so I, I corresponded. And, and I think, you know, looking back on that episode, of course, the point was that, and, and, and David, your, your point about being an educator and trying to figure out how to navigate this, that was my reference point for what it was like in a very unsettling situation as an educator. 
right? And right. how do you how do you talk to students in light of this? What is your role? What how much of this overlaps with your role as a as as providing some guidance as an educator or some space for people to explore their own reactions? Uh, I I just didn't have the morning after the election any reference points other than you know I thought of that I thought of that day after and and that's you know, all I was trying to say there and right and you know. and you're not alone in saying that either in the sense that I heard uh, on the most recent episode of Politically Reactive which is a podcast with W Kamau Bell and Ari Kondabolu they had Jake Tapper on as a as a guest and right. the CNN guy yeah. and and he he observed a similar thing he he made a similar connection and and also similarly said, of course, I'm not saying these two things are the same. I'm saying uh, there's a resonance in people's responses and, and reactions. And, uh, and so there are some connections. They're not equivalencies. No, right. The unsettledness, the intensity of, of emotion uh, that some people are feeling, but, you know, they're not, the, <laughs> they're not the same in any sense that, you know, in, in one, there were people bent on murder who accomplished that. And it was Yeah, horrible. by the thousands. Yeah. Right. That's difficult, right? And and not at all similar to what's happened. Although Correct. what has happened is its own kind of thing that we are still processing. And right. I don't I don't know, David, if you had a kind of similar, like, how do you ride the line in terms of talking with students, whether to bring this up, um, whether you felt unsettled or not. Not that you have to address this necessarily, but I'm just since uh, since we're not having an episode about this, we're not having but. an episode. We're going to get to it. <laughs> it. But but I mean, you know, I think Dave, David wanted to mention it, and I thought, you know, oh, I sure. don't know, I don't know. See, I'm already vacillating you can tell like i still don't know how to talk about this yeah um i didn't teach the day after the election i taught the the two days after and i know uh, a lot of the students in my class in their other classes the day after the election had had in-class discussions about it that um one of them uh ryan kalo who i know you've had on the show yeah his class they talked about it and i have his students uh this this quarter and i sort of just wanted to acknowledge it because it seemed weird just to jump in and say let's talk about the scope of covenants not to compete under washington law right um without acknowledging it. But I think for my students, I think they'd talked about it formally enough. And I, my sense was acknowledge it and, and move on. So that get, was my, get back to normality, right? Yeah. 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 Or to the extent possible. Yeah. And I acknowledged it once and then, and we've moved on since yeah. then. So. so David, did you grow up around the Chicago suburbs? I did not. I grew up in a Western suburb of Minneapolis. So I'm ah, a ah, Westerner, uh, Minnetonka, Minnesota, home of Minnetonka Moccasins near near Prince's Studios, Paisley Park. Definitely a Midwestern accent. Is that right? It's coming out. Amazing. OK, yeah. I got the wrong herb. So I got the wrong suburb. I'm glad that I uh, I'm glad that I still have it. It's nice. <laughs> OK, are you guys ready to fight about this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm ready. After Christian wants to rumble about the blue book. <laughs> Oh, I want to. I so want to fight about something pointless. Um, uh, although it, it, it's like, so I think right. So so let's go ahead and get the cards on the table in terms of what the issue is. But then we can talk about the sense in which you know writing and and citation as a part of writing is not at all pointless, but but key to right. You, you know, um, establishing what lawyering is and what we do. So I and again. No, I, David. So to get the cards on the table. Okay. So David, another title would have been if the blue book didn't exist, we would have to invent it. Yep, that would have been another one. Yep. Uh, and so why don't you explain why you think that's the case? You know, there are a couple of reasons why I think that's the the case, and uh, the main one that I try to explore in the piece is that lawyering and legal writing is a community conversation and that there is some benefit to to having some rules and some standards about how we're going to write to each other how we're going to reference authority what what certain words and and citations are going to mean and in some sense uh 
you know, there's two kinds of critiques about the blue book. One is we shouldn't have any rules at all. And I, I think it makes sense to have some rules. And some of them are, I don't like these particular rules. And, and I wasn't really particularly interested in having that second fight about, you know, should the comma be italicized or not? Because I think if you're having that argument, you're already sort of conceding the first point, mm. which is that we, we should have some sort of set of rules. And I think a general understanding of some baseline set of rules just helps make things easier so we can move on from citation formatting and worrying about how things look to just say, let's just do it the way everyone does it. And then we can move on and spend more time on on the substance and argue about cases and argue about holdings. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel every time we want to figure out how to cite to a particular case. And, you know, it it's easy for folks like uh, if you're a solo practitioner or if I'm writing a brief on my own, I can pick my own citation convention and just stick to it consistently in my brief. Uh, or Judge Posner can stick to his uh, convention and when he's writing an opinion. And that's a standalone product. And, and, and you don't really need to be that uniform there because you can do whatever you want. And if it's different in your next brief or different in your next opinion, no one really cares. But uh, if you're working together in a big team on a long-term project, I think it just makes sense to have some set of rules and it actually makes things run more efficiently. And if it weren't the blue book, uh, people would come up with something. So, so yeah, I think, I think uh, uh, that's maybe the, the best summary of my 27-page paper. Should we just focus then on the law review context for a second? Because that's where the, what, what you just said, how you ended your, um, your summary kind of leads us to, right? That, that you have multiple actors producing one thing and they need a way to coordinate to produce that thing. And a citation manual helps them to do that coordination, which might otherwise be costly ex post, right? If they're if there aren't ex-ante rules and they're trying to figure out, well, what's best in this particular case. And then as they bring their different pieces together, their different parts, they've got to put in additional effort now to kind of rationalize and, and make uniform their, their different contributions. What, what made David's argument really persuasive to me, uh, and I did find it very persuasive, uh, this segment of the argument, is if you think about, you know, you've got from 40 to 50 staff members on the journal, you've got several issues a year. Uh, four or more. In some cases, it's eight, maybe even more than that. Uh, and especially if we look at the law reviews that produce the Blue Book, Harvard, Penn, that jazz, right? Um, they tend to have more issues per year. So you've got tens of people uh, producing a, a few thousand pages with a few thousand footnotes every year. And And David, I think the one thing that would have made your argument even stronger, and I don't think you mentioned it, uh, is it's not merely that you have all these people to coordinate it's that they turn over every year. So every year you lose half of the training of the, of the prior year. Coordinating yeah. all these people to produce that thing that you just mentioned, Christian, right. and that, David, this is sort of his argument, that seems like a really uh, a place where the efficiency to be gained uh, seems substantial. Let's bracket one, one issue, and we'll just take it for granted, that the system contained within the Blue Book and its complexity does not let's just assume it doesn't influence the number of footnotes that authors write. So in other words, there's nothing kind of, there's nothing endogenous to the system that it's kind of producing, the the amount of work that you describe, right, is not being increased because of the complexity of the system. Now, Mm. we have made that argument in, in, or at least I think I made that argument in past shows, right? Right. It's like you, because you become expert in something, like everything looks like a nail, right, up to a hammer. So let's just, let's just bracket that and assume that that's not on the table. 
then the question becomes, you know, is, you know, part of it is, is, is the game worth the candle? Is that the right, is that what it is? Is, is yeah. the game worth the candle? I always forget, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, I guess at the, one way, <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm struggling again. Why am I struggling so much lately, Joe? I don't know, but just work through it. I'm Use your struggler. words. I'm a struggler. Why do we need articles within a volume of a law journal to be uniform in their choice of citation? I understand within an article, it makes it look nicer. There's an aesthetic preference for uniformity and maybe even some functional preference. We can get into that in a little bit. But why do we need one article in a volume of the Columbia Law Review to look like, to look like another article in the Columbia Law Review? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I have two answers to that. One of them is we, we don't. Uh, we don't really need to have them all, all look the same. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll take that answer first, which is that there's no reason th- that they all do need to be the same. But the reason why I think it's useful for them all to be the same is that then you don't need to segment people working on different, different papers to have different students working on different papers. And, and what I mean by that is if the Columbia Law Review is publishing six uh, essays or six pieces in one volume and then six in the next volume, et cetera, et cetera, for the staff, it's just so much easier to just say, here's how we want things to look. And you don't need to have a separate memo that says, okay, this particular author likes to italicize the V between cases. This one doesn't. This author likes to cite to this source. This author doesn't. This author likes to put the middle initial in an author's name, but this other piece doesn't. You can just say, I know the rules and I can apply them. And then you can plug different students in on different pieces to work on whatever you want, whenever you want, rather than having for the whole year or for the whole cycle, a dedicated team of six students that says, here are the rules for this one, focus on that. So you get a little more plug and play with the, with the editors if you just have one set of rules. And I'll, I'll just add the part of this paper is informed by, I was the executive managing editor of the Columbia Law Review when I was a third year law student. And it was just so much work dealing with every individual author that had an individual preference for how they wanted to do things that I got so many questions from individual article editors, individual 2Ls who said, well, what do I do with this? What do I do with that? And if I could just say, just do it the blue book way, I had to litigate so many fewer um, <laughs> issues. So, so, there's, so there's no, there's no, you don't, you don't make any kind of normative argument for intra-volume or inter-volume consistency. Right. So, so my weak argument is that you don't need to, but it's just more efficient that way. So you only have to learn one set of rules rather than having to learn a different set for each, each piece. But I think normatively, I don't see the the harm in it. And I do note that sort of, you know, the AP has a style guide, the New York Times has a style guide, the New Yorker has a style guide. I mean, the idea that a publication shouldn't have some sort of in-house style and that when you submit to them, they're going to use their in-house style. I just don't see the need to rebel against that. I've published things in well, I published things. That I published a small book review a couple of years ago in a journal that used uh, the Allwood manual. And so they changed all my footnotes and I just didn't care. I thought that's fine. They can do it however they want to do it. And it didn't bother me. So, so I guess for an author who's publishing with the Columbia Law Review or the Penn Law Review or whoever, I don't see the need for Columbia to make sure all their pieces look the same. But I also, on the flip side, don't see the need for that author to say, I want my piece to be formatted in a way that's different from your uniform in-house style, especially if you're going to do all the work changing. (laughs) And, you know, in Tervolume, there are there actually are inconsistencies if you take a big enough chunk of time. So uh, because the Blue Book itself changes. So, for example, there was a time when the Blue Book, when you're when you're citing to a law review article, you wouldn't include the author's first name. You would simply include their family name. Now you use their first name and their family name. When that changed. 
suddenly we could go back in time and we could find the two volumes of the Columbia Law Review, for example, um, that straddle that, that line. Yeah. Uh, and, but, and so, and it would be, I think it would be really bizarre uh, if there was a lot of argumentation when that change was under consideration by the Blue Book editorial board. If someone said, uh, although surely someone did say at that meeting, wait a minute, wait a minute, this will produce an inconsistency between the last volume and the next volume. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but if the if the change is worth making, it's worth making on the reasons why we think it's important to include someone's first name, mm-hmm. whatever those arguments were. Yeah, I just thought this was important to establish because I think the more complicated arg- uh, arguments have to do with kind of your labor force and, and economies of scale with the labor force who are producing these things be- because the the, the argument about consistency is particularly weak with law reviews because absolutely no one consumes law reviews in a, in a, on a volume basis, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you don't need no a, one. There are a few. There are a few I remember, at least when I was in law school, they'd read the book. But yes, that's right. That's not the goal. Yeah. And I mean, a, a law review would be misguided to try to maximize its kind of uh, within issue or within volume uh, readership pleasure, right? You know, writing like little vignettes connecting one article to right. another would be a waste of time because no one consumes articles right. in that way. But to be able to modularize 10 chunk, ten page chunks of editing work. Well, I'm going to get to that separate. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah that yeah. sounds like a really important efficiency. But it's a, I just want to yeah. clarify it's a different point, right? So, yes. so th- there's no, absolutely. if we can just agree, there's like no positive normative value in in making one article in a volume consistent with another article in that same volume like there's no you know from the demand side from the demand side yeah there's maybe from the supply side but not. and david makes the point that maybe there's not a cost to that and it would be similar to other publications that's fine but there's no positive value in it and then we move to the other question like is it cheaper to produce basically if everybody knows what to target and you don't have these ex post arguments about how to align things within an article right right that's but there is some economy of scale to be gained when everyone is equipped with the ex ante rule for editing an article in a particular way. Yeah. And I think I want to make one point on your author's name uh, uh, rule, because this comes up all the time. And one of the things I got to do when putting together this piece was read basically every review of every edition of the blue book that's come out in the past, you know, 20, 30 years. Exciting. Um, And that one, it was a good, I had a fun summer vacation. Um, (laughs) But but that's one of the most controversial ones. And this is why one of the problems, it's so difficult to defend the blue book to the extent I'm trying to do that is when that change came out, you had people who said, on the merits, changing from just last name to first name uh, does not make sense. It's extra space. It's going to clutter up the footnotes. Who cares? So on the merits, they preferred the only the last name. You had people who on the merits really preferred the full name for various issues of identifying, uh, uh, identifying authors. Uh, there was a feminist critique of only using the last name. Um, there's more, there, you know, there are a million people with the same last name who are publishing things. So there was a substantive argument for changing it. And then there was sort of a procedural argument against changing it, which is it's really not that much of a problem. And now if I'm someone like, uh, and Brian Garner talks about this when he talks about updating his works, when he's updating a, a book to a new edition, if he wants to keep it current, then he has to go back and find all the author's first names for the stuff he's already done to update it for no reason other than the rule is different now and he's already done that work and he has to redo things. So you have sort of substantive arguments on both sides and you have a, a, a just a change for change sake shouldn't be done argument in the middle. And it's really hard to balance all three of those if you're a blue book editor thinking about an individual change. Interesting history. I hadn't thought of the revising an existing work in a new edition problem. But you're right. That is a that's a that is a cost. 
to changing the rule. And I think you'll see that in Wright and Miller. If you look at sort of Wright and Wright Miller online, and I'm sorry if I'm unfairly maligning them, but a lot of these uh, treatises, if you look at their citations, they'll still use CA1, CA2, CA3 instead right. of the new, because they don't go back and change them. Yeah, they'll be damned if they're going to go back, <laughs> go back yeah. and do all that work. Although some of those things are easier to do. I mean, the CA1, CA2 thing, of course, that's now manageable with a global search and replace in a way that yeah. actually adding more information, I got to go look up someone's first name. Is, that's yeah. a that's a different kind of problem. Yeah. When did that change get made? The the addition of first names. I mean, it's a long time ago, right? Oh boy, I cite it in the piece. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue. I don't know. It it seems like it was a long time ago. I want to say sixteenth or seventeenth edition, maybe sixteenth, which is like the the late eighties. Yeah, fascinating, Joe. <laughs> I find it. <laughs> I, I love. I would love to read. Here's how bad I am. Here's how far gone I am. <laughs> I would read a history of the blue book, like oh, and enjoy it. Truly. Oh, God. I find this stuff really fun. I, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't need to speak in hypotheticals. They're, they're, uh, one was just published uh, last year. Yeah, I meant a hardbound volume, ah. the full, like a, like a historian, like a PhD history student's uh, thesis, doctoral yeah. dissertation. That's, I, some, that's some good stuff right there. I think any, any reasonable history of the, of the Blue Book would read like a crime thriller. <laughs> 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 how how was this crime committed? Now, now that, that, that's my that's my provocative um, entry point to getting to I think points of disagreement here. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, well, maybe maybe we'll start with another point of agreement. I mean, we all agree that complexity in the rules of citation is a burden on the people whose job it is to check citations, right? And it is a cost, and it is a cost yeah. that has to be justified, right? Yes. And the other thing I would say is that the economies of scale you get by taking your staff and and kind of equipping them ex ante with rules of citation so there's no kind of ex post harmonization that has to occur which may have its own costs that this depends on the number of people who are being coordinated i mean if you have to coordinate 50 people it's different than if you have to coordinate two with respect to a single article yep and we're down to the point of just saying we need to harmonize right. people around a single article now and my guess is that the increase from 2 to 50 is not a a factor of 25 it's a factor much bigger than 25 Exactly. But the number of people that have to work on an article is in part a function of the complexity of the citation system, since the checking of citations is, I, I don't know how, you, you've done this before, I'm thinking back to my law review days, it is a huge percentage of the effort that an, an editor of, on, a, on a law journal has to put in. Am I yeah. right about that? Oh, definitely. I disagree on that point. I disagree on that point, but I, I don't know if that matters. But if, if you... If you read, this is, I think, one of the fault lines of people who are not bothered by the blue book and people who are. If you read Brian Garner's uh, review of the 18th edition, I, I believe, um, or it was right after when the Maroon book came out, so maybe it was earlier than that. He talks about how, you know, finding the citation format to him just didn't take that much time. It wasn't that big of a deal. So it wasn't worth all the, you know, complaints about it because he thought, you know, it's really not that big a deal. It doesn't take that long. And that was somewhat my experience. Uh, if you look at what 2L staffers do, I think you can look at a citation and just check the format very quickly. The, the tougher part is checking the source, making sure the source information is right. So it's not the format, it's the substance. Is this the right volume? Is this the right page? Does that proposition actually appear on this page? True, right, it true. took me so much longer to scan the page to make sure that the quote was accurate. And you're not going to get around that by changing the formatting rules. So I, right. I think the formatting rules 
really are a small percentage of the work that 2Ls are actually doing when they're checking a site. David, let me help you uh, more quickly identify what Christian was really getting at. (laughs) Yeah. Because the the real contrast in Christian's mind is not not between um, having form one versus form two of that footnote citation. It's the difference between having it and not having it. Right. Uh, Because uh, the, the real problem is too damn many footnotes. Right. And you might and you might postulate, I, I don't know that I would, but a person might, maybe I would, but a person might postulate that um, that the Blue Book is partly responsible for the proliferation of the footnotes I thought themselves. we were bracketing this. I thought hmm? we were, I, I, I'm willing to bracket that. Oh, you are willing to bracket because that. Because I already said that. You that, seem but, to be charging right toward it, no, which no, is no, that no. it was a big factor in figuring out the costs and the benefits. I, I think you it really is a big can't factor. bracket I think it, it, actually. I think it is a big factor. I think it's empirical, uh, but but hard to study. Like, you know, do, are, are there more footnotes because the Blue Book is a complex system and mastering that complex system is is somewhat difficult, And it, but it's something which you know whether you've mastered it or not. And so it's something that you would like to, you know, there's this whole feedback loop. So it's possible that the number of footnotes has been a function of the complexity of the citation system, given the student edited law review system. But I thought, you know, we, I think we can, we can bracket that and oh. still get it in at okay. some interesting I'm questions. surprised to hear you say that. So well, you... because I don't know that we can say any more about it. I mean, it's just a, it's either true or it's not. And I, I have no way of knowing how to study it. Yeah, I suspect it's, still, it's still great to fight about things you can't <laughs> fully elaborate on. Um, but, you know, but if I'm wrong at what you were driving at, you should say what you were driving at. What I was driving at is that, um, and I take uh, David's point that, you know, I'm trying to think back again to my own experience. You know, a lot of it was, I I remember, I think it was my year in the law review, I finally said, no, you don't have to go pull the books off the shelves. The canonical versions can be what you find in Westlaw, so that it can be easier to site check cases and check quotes, and you can do searching and all of that. And I think my year we bought wireless cards for everybody, because laptops didn't have wireless built in. So we started trying to, like, get people away from having to go to that particular carol to check those volumes of the Could I ask you for clarification on that? When when you said you allowed them to go to Westlaw, is that the the Westlaw OCR version or did they go to Westlaw and then click on the PDF from the official reporter? No, Westlaw, it didn't matter to me, whatever. Okay. The, The managing editors may have had a different view, but that was, you know, it was up to them how they wanted to do it. But my view was that what people looked up online on Westlaw, not the PDF, but just was more or less the canonical version. And even if there were errors, it did not matter. So you were a sort of libertine, not quite Caligula, but, but you were sort of a libertine <laughs> of, a, of a rather dramatic degree. I don't, do you think that's dramatic to say that, you know, if you, want to check, if you want to check a quotation, it's enough to check the electronic version on Westlaw? In the, in the, in the realm of clenched blue bookers, that might be a bit, a bit radical. But, so, uh, the, so then the question is, what, so this was another example of this. So, <laughs> so what additional benefit comes from going to the, because I don't think they had the PDFs at this point. This was in 2001, 2002. Right. I think they were just getting and it wasn't, I don't think the it was benefits universal accuracy, at that accuracy, of course. I mean, well, but like, we, what which kinds, what kinds of inaccuracies are you detecting by going to the books, and is that going to change anything? Is anything in, or is any idea that anybody ever gets from any article going to change because the online version? And when I say online version, this is the 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 data textual version rather than the PDF or the printed version. You know, it's funny in a way we're getting to the question of authority, aren't we, David? Like it's what's yep. authoritative and why are things cited? And if if you're talking about a statute or a case and it's the difference between a comma and a semicolon, that could change the meaning of the sentence. It could. In a way that you might act, that depending on the argument you're making could really be meaningful. It could. Right? 
I mean, David, what do you 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 talked about the the fact that part of what we're doing here is running a system of authority. One of the fun things about this this project, but one of the difficult things is you can spin out to these levels so quickly. And it really is, uh, in some ways, just about what is the authority. And the Blue Book says, when you're citing to a particular source, this is the best authority for what that source said. I mean, and no one is saying that what you should cite to is the original signed PDF uh, that was scanned and put on PACER. You know, it's it's the one that goes in the federal supplement. Yeah, um, good is point. the one that you're supposed to cite to. And these are all different things. Um, you know, other people have written about this, uh, about the the difference between um, what goes in the statutes at large versus what goes in the United States code. Right. I called one of my uh, former coworkers, I called him up uh, in writing this review because we had a case that we worked on when we were practicing uh, where the bound volume of the uh, uh, Securities and Exchange Act was different than the code volume that was in the U.S. code, which was different from the statutes at large in terms of how paragraph breaks were formatted. And the difference had it had a substantive meaning for whether or not an introductory clause followed through to the next two or three paragraphs. And I tried so hard to go back and find that, uh, but, but but I couldn't find it from the original case. But there are other examples where the statutes at large different from the code or the code is different from um, something else. Uh, and Westlaw just recently said there were a number of differences in their cases versus what was in the PDF. And so I, you know, how big of a difference it is, I, I don't know. I ran into enough when I was uh, when I was a law student where we had back and forth arguments with authors where they insisted that their quote was correct and we insisted that it was wrong and it, and their their quote was from the OCR Westlaw version and ours was from the PDF and you know maybe it it doesn't matter but but I'm I'm of the school of thought that I'd like the quote to be right um, and I'd like <laughs> let the reader decide whether or not it it makes a a difference and just deal with what it actually says. Um, so, so I, I would just like to get what the quote is, and and, I, and I maybe it's a small benefit, but I think it's worth worthwhile. Yeah, I guess you know my perspective is that all benefits that you seek in editing have to be justified, and and sometimes you just don't know, and you just have to make a you know a kind of use heuristics to to guess at it. But you know, as you know, like the number of rounds of editing a piece goes through, the number of people who look at it, all of those involve kind of cost-benefit balances. Uh, we can always, we might always be able to do better by putting it through more levels of review, although I think you reach a point where you are as likely to introduce errors as you are to detect them at some point yep. of, of review. Definitely. Um, but, but we can always go through more elaborate procedures to review, but at some point it's just not worth it. And people will, will strike that differently. I guess I want to return though to the to, to the point about kind of the complexity of the citation system itself. Yeah. And my point was going to be that as the complexity of the citation system increases, the number of people that it takes to, to the, the staffing needs of an article go up, the mm-hmm. number of human hours that go into editing go up, and you are probably going to be inclined to basically throw more bodies at it. You, you partly addressed that earlier when you said that, that the citation checking itself is not the dominant drain of time, which also suggests, by the way, that law reviews are in general, picking their staff incorrectly, since most of them use blue booking quizzes and things like that. Not all, but but many do. Yeah. Do you just, I mean, so if we had a very simple citation system, you know, I'm on record with my blue line, (laughs) suggesting one, um, which I'm I'm still committed to. Um, This is author, comma, title, uh, and then parentheses, date for everything. 
am I am I wrong about that? That as complexity increases, the number of bodies you have to throw at the problem increase, and it as and and therefore the the cost of non uniformity increase with the number of bodies. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it, it's. Oh, like, I totally yeah, agree with yeah. that. I totally agree with that, and I and I think you're right. And I don't make a strong claim about that in the piece. I I, I sort of hedge on that, and I hedge on it intentionally because I had, you know. On the one hand, every single piece that I read about the blue book was all negative, and no one had really made a case for any any benefit side for this complex system of rules that there is some efficiency gain. But I totally agree that at some point that 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 the marginal returns are exceeded by the marginal costs, and and I don't know where that point is. And and so, I guess my, my two responses to that in the piece are one: yes, there are increasing marginal costs, but you still need to look at the marginal benefit and that's an interesting discussion. But if we're having that discussion, I think that's a useful one rather than only saying there are these costs and therefore we shouldn't have it at all. And so I, I think if, if if that's the debate, then I'm happy with that. On the second side, in terms of empirically looking at this, um, maybe law students aren't the best judge of what an efficient use of their time is, but for every law school, like the Berkeley Journal of Gender Law and Justice just came out with a uh, a stripped down, simpler citation manual that they're using instead of the blue book. For everyone that does that, there are other ones like Columbia and the University of Washington does this. And, and I know a number of other law reviews do it as well, where they're adding specific rules for in-house style because there are questions that, believe it or not, are not addressed by a blue book rule <laughs> that they keep getting asked. And so they say, let's quit talking about this. Let's just have a rule. And so from that data point, it seems like maybe even the blue book, and I know this sounds ridiculous to say, maybe it hasn't yet reached the point where the marginal costs exceed the marginal returns of increasing complexity for the mission of particular law reviews if they're publishing a lot of pieces that have a lot of footnotes. Um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I I think at least that's the discussion we, we should be having rather than just, this is all a waste of time. We should get rid of it without recognizing the benefits. And I just try to make yeah. a case for the benefits in the piece. Well, I want to talk in a second about these kind of ex post harmonization costs, which is the thing that I think your your positive argument is trying to minimize, right? That the blue book serves the role of of minimizing these ex post harmonization costs. But um, right. so one of the things I did when I uh, became president of the Law Review was to change things so that it wasn't the way you the kind of the way you describe the the economy of the Law Review, where where you know as a student you'll get like two or three pages or, or five pages or ten page, however much it is, you'll get a small section of an article. You'll do your edits, you'll turn those in, and then later on you'll get some other 10-page section from some other article or something. Yeah. That, that was how it worked when I came on the journal, and I changed that precisely to give more flexibility and buy-in per article. So I, I created editing teams led by a 3L member and then just assigned articles to teams. And so, you know, kind of let federalism rule the day. So however they want to divide up the work, if, if you're busy this semester, maybe you even get a pass on one of the articles and then you do more the next time. And also asked for those teams to provide substantive feedback. So the idea was that if your team got an article, maybe as a team member, because you would be doing all rounds of review on this article, you might actually read the thing, you know, yeah. uh, all the way through. And, and so you would have this kind of additional um, uh, perspective on the piece. If that's the case, then maybe harmonization is cheaper uh, because it isn't this, you know, exposed harmonizing all these people who didn't even know they were each working on it. They're kind of all working together. And I would go further and say that this harmonization cost itself, it's the price you pay for caring about uniformity, right? It's the price you 
pay for caring about whether it's done this way or that way. It's, it's both uniformity, but also what is the right way to do this? So if there's only one citation to some international source in an article, and we don't have a rule which specifies how that source should be cited, the uncertainty about how to cite it is only a cost if anybody cares. Right. Right. It's only a cost if we have some disagreement about how it should be done among the group. But if we take the attitude that it doesn't matter, then that's not a cost at all. It's however, whoever edited it, or maybe even just the author cited it, so long as it looks okay, right? If people have a dispute about that, then it becomes a cost. So it seems to me, too, that, the, that these harmonization costs depend on, one, kind of the way that the article is staffed, right? Whether people are in a community where they're talking about this thing together, or they're kind of just separate, transactionally separate editors. And it depends on the degree to which people are actually going to care about getting it right. Well, Joe, you're looking at me quizzically. Well, I mean, I I agree, I think, that you can describe production methodologies that would reduce some of the harmonization costs at the level of that layer of staff. I don't think that addresses the vertical question within a Law Review staff, right? There's not just the team, there's a senior editor, there's the EIC. But putting that to the side, there's the coordination between an author and that review. Moreover, dialing back in time, there's the coordination between that author and all the reviews to whom the author submits the piece. And at a time when the author doesn't know, indeed, that's, that law review may not know, how it's going to approach staffing the, the article when it accepts it, if it accepts it. So I, I think it's, it's this... Uh, this harmonization that... cost is a hard thing to get your arms around if you really want to chase down all the probabilities. But I think. the entire cost is within the control of the law review, right? Because the entire cost comes from its dispute about how things should be cited. So it controls that cost. Yeah, but there's a, there's a complex coordination going on. with. For example, I'm sure there are law review editors who have rejected pieces because they were sort of a blue book catastrophe. Right. Mm -hmm. And they thought to themselves, as between this thing that we think is well written and well blue booked and this thing that we think is interesting and kind of well written, but is sort of a blue book hot mess. Let's take the first. Well, well, that means authors have an incentive to, to try to not be a blue book hot mess because they know that law reviews are sort of thinking through. So I think we're, I, I mean, we're talking about So a that switch. only compounds the problem because it increases the cost on authors in producing articles. When you say blue book hot mess. I think there are two different ways that something could be a blue book hot mess. One is there just aren't a lot of footnotes or the footnotes are incomplete. I would expect that people would reject articles for that reason, not because the blue booking's off, but because the sourcing is thin and they know they're going to need to track down a bunch of pin sites. The substantive part of getting the footnotes in order is going to take them a lot of time um, because they don't have sources for things or the author has a lot of work to do left on the piece. Uh, The blue book could be a mess if if everything looks thoroughly cited, but the citations seem a little bit off, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe the italics uh, italics are wrong or they're not using small and large caps properly or whatever. Uh, I would be surprised if law reviews were rejecting things for the latter reason, just because it's really easy to fix that by just having an editor run through and, you know, like you said, either do a find a replace for common errors um, or just have staffers fix that stuff really quickly. Right. So I think there's two kinds of differences, and I don't think it matters so much if it's just a little off if all the information is there. That's a fair point. And, and, I, and the sourcing, I mean, as, as, as hard as one tries to keep these analytically distinct things, 
um, how how many citations are there, which is I think analytically separate from yeah, you know, yeah. when they are there, how are they fo- what are what form do they take? They get re entwined in conversation. The the larger point that there's sort of a big kind of mega switch and it's either on or off. Um, but it's very hard for a single review or a single author to sort of um, decide to do things very differently, right? Because because that you, you suddenly are the one who's uncoordinating in this very tightly woven web of coordination, right? Yeah, I, and I think the you know your point about structuring it differently so you have fewer lanes of people trying to reach uniformity, and if you have an author or a team on a particular piece. I think that's that's right. If you go from six or seven people coordinating on a piece uh, to 40 people coordinating on a piece, the benefits of having uniform rules across everything diminish. I, I agree with that. Um, I guess your point of the conversations ex post about how we want to cite to something being a cost of uniformity. A, co- a cost of disuniformity, I think. Or a cost, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, right, a cost of disuniformity. Assuming that you still want all the the citations and the format within a piece, within a team, to be generally the same. I, I still see some benefit in just having the people say, look, we're just going to do it this way. We could spend some time talking about the way we want to do it. But there's also a book that already has a way that tells us how to do it. Why not just agree on that book? And then our individual team can spend our time discussing the, the substance of whether or not we think the piece makes sense or how that works. I mean, yeah. you, 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 I, I still think you'd rather have that, that conversation happen substantively rather than about how we want to cite cases. In of, of course, of course. And so maybe we can move to the other, the other issue because I, you know, I, no one likes these harmonization costs if they exist. My point was only that they are within the control of the journal because they're a function of how much you care, yeah. right? About, about whether it is this way or that way. Personally, I would like people to care less about that and more about what you just described. But let's. But we we could solve harmonization with any number of rule systems, right? We we could uh, we yep. could minimize these costs. And so, a, a separate issue that you tackle in the piece that we should talk about is is you know why this system rather than another system. But in particular, what you know what is the right level of ornateness? Uh, you know, in other words, you know, as we get more and more ornate with our rules, you know, what justifies that? You know, so so the, you know, if you think of the rule system as having a complexity uh, parameter, what's the right level for that? My my view is that it should be as close to zero as you can make it, so long as it serves that function of eliminating these harmonization costs to the extent that they are, to the extent that they exist, and you have to care about them, or that some people do care about them. And you know, that's why you know I didn't my, my suggestion of this blue line, this the single rule is not exactly tongue in cheek. I mean, I I think it would solve an enormous number of problems. You know, so we have to talk about like what do you what do you need within the rule system and if yeah. what and if what you if the argument is that by the time you describe all the things that you really need that it includes everything in the blue book, then it's just a matter of well, is it should it be the blue book or the indigo book or one of these other, you know, th- then we are it's it yes, this is the right level of complexity. Yeah. But I'm not yet sold that this is the right level of complexity. Yeah, I think well well getting on the the your because I'm not against your blue line uh, uh, proposal in, in a lot of ways, because especially when you when you talk about secondary sources or books, if all you want is the author's name, the title, um, and what was the other item, maybe a year or a date? Or something I, I think a date. And let me just say this, right? It's the the there's a it's a rule and a standard, right? The standard yeah. is that you need to disambiguate. 
the key thing and I think is that, everyone agrees on that right standard. the, the yeah. key thing is that you can find the source right? right but the the blue book tries to deal with disambiguation through more and more elaborate rules yeah uh, but I, I think you can deal with that just by saying you know this is the default and then any additional information necessary to disambiguate because you're never you know in whatever rule system you describe there could be two things which are basically named the same especially when it comes to cases right and so sometimes you'll need an additional citation maybe even the Westlaw citation. So, so for me, you know, maybe it would be author, title, and then year. That might be good enough for books and things. I think for district court opinions, you're often going to want a more granular date because, as you point out in the, in the article, you can have three or four United States versus Fishers coming out of the same district court, having the same, basically the same author within the same year. But that's easily handled by adding more granular information about date. I think that the, the Blue Book's rules... And the way that it disambiguates and the, it, it kind of, it, it's out of this other era where the main problem was directing the person to where to find the source within a physical library. Like, so we used typography to indicate this is a book, so you need to go to the book section. This is a periodical, therefore you need to go to the periodical section. Right. This is a case, and therefore you need to go to the, to the reporters. We don't have that problem anymore. You type in, it, basically, if I copy and paste your citation, will it be the first thing that comes up in in Google or DuckDuckGo or a search engine. That's, for me, that's the most important thing, uh, that, it, that it clearly disambiguate, d- disambiguates the, your source from potential other sources and that it is uh, as simple as possible given that objective to check and to write initially. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I, you know, one thing that, that you've talked about and that I touch on briefly in the piece is that if we get to a point where sources are publicly available and freely available, um, in a sort of a clear form online, if you could link to it in the piece, then a lot of the need for the citation to include information about where to find it, that would go away. You would just need to have information about the source so you'd know what, uh, how much weight to give it, what, you know, what kind of opinion it is, how old it is, is it a book, is it a large, you know, just you'd have to be able to tell what it is. Um, but then you could just click on the link and you go. That would certainly make things much simpler. You know, your point about books and secondary sources, in, in large part, that's already what the citation is. It's just name, title, and year. The difference for journal articles needing to provide a citation uh, for it is largely a part of your, your, your Google point that if you just put the title in, you know, whether or not you get an old version, uh, some of those things are stuck behind paywalls. Not all law reviews publish their stuff online freely. Um, you know, not everyone has access to Hein online. You might get an SSRN version that maybe you can download. Maybe it's an old version of the paper. So right. I don't think Google is as easy yet. I mean, I think that that could be coming down the road, but it's not as easy yet. But but that would take some of the thing uh, away from it. Now, there's a practitioner point buried in here. I think that that I think David, your your piece does a really good job of of bringing to the surface, which is, you know, if I've got if I'm envisioning the citation system, uh, Christian, that that you've described, and you could even imagine. Evolving, where you know there are just what are those weird boxes, QR codes or something? Oh no, yes, God no. But but I'm saying you can imagine it would be perfect disambiguation, right? Uh, Because it it would be undoubtedly it would identify only one thing, and if everyone was using it, you can. But but Uh, Joe, I'm not blind to aesthetics, as you know. So I I know, (laughs) but but so just play with the point here, which (laughs) is simply that that if you're if you're if you're a judge reading a brief. And you want to know if the person has just told you there's a Supreme Court case directly on point, or instead there is a magistrate judge's decision in a discovery dispute that has a quotation in it that looks relevant but turns out is a lot less important when you actually go read it, right? right? Those two very different situations are the sort of thing you want to be able to see right while you're reading 
the brief. Um, and so that, that it's not just in disambiguation in terms of findability, it's the hierarchy of authoritativeness that things can wear on their face. And the citation system is designed to identify that as well. And David, I think you really kind of teed that up in the paper in a way that's pretty important. Yeah, I, I think that's important, too. I mean, a lot of the discussion, the critique of, of the Blue Book doesn't talk about authority um, or, or that level of authority uh, that needs to come through in a citation. And, you know, the other point on granularity that relates to that is that the Blue Book rules are designed to work for as close to 100 percent of cases as possible. And, and I think the the blue line point about just, you know, one rule for Supreme Court opinions, one rule for if you need more granularity at a at a state court level or a district court level, we might disagree on this. I like a rule that's just going to work for 100% of the cases. And I don't need to check to see if there are other cases with the same name from the same court on the same day. I mean, even if you look at criminal cases, how many United States v. Smiths are going on even in one district court in, in the country? You could have two opinions in one day. Maybe that doesn't happen that often, but you know, our court system is so large that that's not a, that's not a vanishingly small uh, uh, possibility. And so I, I see there being some cost in looking at a case and saying, here's the case name, here's the court, here's the date. That should be enough. But then having to go through the work of checking to see if that's enough or sort of telescoping your level of granularity on a case-by-case basis is not the way that the blue book does it. And maybe it's just because I like eliminating even a small risk of error. I like the idea of just saying, this is all the information you need. It's going to give you everything you need to find the source, to understand the authority of the source, um, not just in 99% of the cases, but in in all the cases. Really in all? I mean, I wonder if it's, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I because not all the cases are reported and the ones that aren't, I mean, oftentimes you, people resort to, because they're not all even There's in the federal appendix. That. There's rules I know that. you cite Westlaw and you cite other things, but those could go away. So, so my point is that if you cite everything with, with specific dates and you link it, right, then the danger, you know, you're, you're going to, it's going to be unambiguous so long as that link survives, right? Oh but, yeah. The but, link, but then, the but then link great. rot. So the worry is link rot, you know, maybe we could have Westlaw rot at some point. I don't mm. know. But um, uh, so, so if all that goes away, the worst that happens is you've got a broken link, which maybe you can find in an Internet Archive. You've got the name, which you can then put into a search engine. And maybe it comes up with two United States versus Smiths that were both decided in the District of um, Rhode Island on the same day. Will it be obvious to somebody if that happens, which case was actually being referred to? I mean, I that, that, is the, that seems to me a very, very small cost. I feel like if I were much smarter, I would be able to come up with a pithy way to describe the... You wouldn't be sitting here with me on this show. The way that you and David are characterizing this, and it would involve it would involve clever use of the phrase "discount rate." Mm. Um, Like you're both, you both seem to be concerned. You you seem to be concerned about different things, based in large part about the timing, and you're putting a lot of things off into the future as non problems, right? right? Um, Versus putting it up front as let's just get it right at step one, and then there's so much we don't need to worry about. Right. David, am I hearing you right? And Christian, that is that is exactly right. And uh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) So I did it. I said discount rate. I thought after the talk of the one true rule, your phrase was going to be and in the darkness, bind them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, could I say, I mean, all of this stuff, I I love talking about this. I think it's interesting to think about how we as lawyers do do the work that we do. But when we get to the point where uh, governments get on board with publicly providing 
permanent. And, you know, permanent, who's to say you, know, you have faith that the government is going to keep the server running. But if the state of Washington and, and all the jurisdictions and the federal jurisdictions say, we're going to provide a link that is a permanent link to our cases that are the, that have the force of law and to the statutes that have the force of law, and these are official, and th- these don't contain typos. If, if there are typos in it, who, then, then it's the official typo and any other mm-hmm. version is wrong. Then a lot of this goes away. Uh, so, I mean, this whole debate is going to be totally irrelevant in maybe five, 10 years if uh, if Carl Malmud uh, and, and, you know, he worked on the Indigo Book Project, if he gets his way and all of this stuff is public domain and there's permanent government links, then you're exactly right. We don't need to worry about version finding. Uh, I'm just really hesitant to, to try to get there before we're there with Google searches and, uh, you know, errors in online databases of things that are, are funded by uh, or run by third parties, right. especially when these things are not free. And, you know, a, a link to Westlaw doesn't do a whole lot of good to a, a pro se prisoner who doesn't have Westlaw access. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's, you, know, you can provide a link. I think you need to provide an as predictably unambiguous a, a description of what you're referring to as possible. And, you know, you st- still have to get to, because the Blue Book does much more than disambiguate, right? It also provides, as, as you guys were talking about earlier, um, kind of an order of authorities, you know, with the order of signals. Uh, it, it uses typography to tell you basically where to find the thing in the library, but also what kind of thing it is, which may still be useful. These are the things I also question, though, um, how yeah. how useful these are. I'm not sure that, you know, you know, so if the blue book tries to predict like which which kind of, well, I don't know. I mean, certainly the order of signals seems to me very weird because <laughs> 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 it presumes like you have to do the what the C before the C examples before the CF. And I, I just there's something to me that's that that's rings very true. In the notion that, yeah, it does feel a little bit weird to think about that in in the mine run of cases. However, there will be enough cases where where someone's sitting there thinking about what to do, like how to do it, and and then having to figure it out with someone else who's on the same staff. And then, you know, what do they do next year? And someone's trying to remember what they did last time. So someone grows and grabs last year's volume and blah, 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 blah. just just like, let's get it right and write it down, like let's come up with something that makes sense. Sure, I just don't write it down, and then we don't need to solve this problem again. Are we talking about order of signals? Yeah. So it's well, like so a, why do we even why not just do it in the order that the author wanted it? Why not let the author's communication about because the footnote just contains some citations to other sources and discussion of those sources. Sure. The, the fact that we have signals indicates that the author is trying to convey some meaning about those sources. Okay. So why not let the author's choice of meaning for that whole footnote control? Why I think that's we? a great. I think that's a great approach, generally speaking. And and because I haven't thought through or or prepped examples, I'm I'm at a little bit of a loss to say. You know, maybe this is an example where you're right. This this rule. Okay, is, put down the, a marker. Let's see. Game, this is 59 minutes and five seconds on gain, episode 118. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> gain, maybe the gain on this rule is is super small. But you know, if you're if you're Look, people. Have, everyone's got preferences, and and so maybe if a, if an EIC or the managing editor for that volume is like, yeah, I really don't think yeah, that's is, the right order to like, put right, stuff yeah. in, and, so da, 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 uh, and we you, could keep doing this, I, but because uh, <laughs> I really think this is Posner's point, and and I think mine as well, right? That we all see that it might be beneficial to create some uniformity, so that we don't have to negotiate specific things. Like that's that's always going to be true, right? Right. It's the, it's the opportunity costs that are less visible. 
the opportunity cost of spending our time doing something else, in some cases, the cost of actually changing the author's meaning because of some order of signals rule. But, you know, imagine there was no, you didn't think about rules at all. You just kind of wrote your article and you wrote citations, however you want. I, you know, th- I don't think this would work. I think you need some kind of uniformity for aesthetics, if for no other reason. So I, I'm not in favor of junking everything. But everything that you do beyond that to promote uniformity has to be justified. Yeah. Right? Uh, now, you, it can never be justified exactly. We're going to have to make some guesses about costs and, and benefits, right? And, and so that's why we're never probably going to agree on exactly the right level of complexity here. But it's just all too easy to see the, uh, um, to see, oh boy, I don't know how to do this. Um, or or we, could, we, we could agree to disagree about how to cite this thing. Therefore, we need a rule. It will solve that problem. But what we, what's less visible is the cost of adding that additional rule to the system. Okay, so what is it? What is what? The cost of adding it to the system. It's another rule to master. It's another rule for authors to try to target. It's another rule for, um, for students to get wrong and then have to correct. It adds more. So the, the more complex the system, the more chances that for any particular edit there will be errors. You put it through additional levels of editing. And maybe it takes away from other things that that editor would be doing, which uh, I think are salutary, exactly the things that David describes, like right. looking to see, does the, does the source really say that? This is to put to one side the degree to which what authority really means in law. Sometimes it just means somebody else who's saying what I'm saying. Yeah, right? well, yeah, we're, yeah. we're not going to tackle that. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to tackle that. But you know what I did want to tackle? though? And David, you jump back in and just say anything you want to about this. But, but let me just indicate. I'm hoping he'll deliver a knockout blow. Uh, David. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I have no knockout blow because I, I agree with you on the order of signals being a, a, a silly rule. And, oh. um, sorry. I mean, I just... I, and I tried to stay away from sort of critiquing or loving individual rules. I'll just say one thing. That's a perfect example of the sort of rule where there is no rule, uh, at least as far as I can tell. Well, no, no. there. I mean, all of these rules, especially when they're used by lawyers, there's flexibility that lawyers can do. And, and right. no one really cares if a lawyer strictly follows the white pages. Um, you know, now the blue pages do go through and they say, here are the signals. They should be in this order. Should, what does should mean versus must. Right. Take yeah. it as you will. But I don't love that rule. I think, you know, if we're going to do a history of the blue book and, and think about how these things came about. <laughs> Joe's cheering. I'm silently cheering. It's almost a story of you start with something simple. You have a bunch of people who are coming up with answers to things that aren't answered by the rule. And then they look at what they did last time and they say, let's just keep doing that. So it's almost like the common law development. And then every five years or so, they do a restatement and they codify the general common law understanding amongst the different law reviews. And they go from there and they tweak it. And whether or not that means some of the stuff has rules that don't make sense, but they're just there through accident of history, but it's not worth changing now. You know, I don't know, but I agree that some of them seem like things that don't make sense. I think the problem is, is that a lot of us disagree on which ones make sense and which ones don't. (laughs) Um, And we can, you know, then we're just kind of quibbling around the margins. But the overall idea of a lot of rules that answer the things on the front end rather than quibbling about it on the back end. I think makes sense for these big, these big missions. Um, and of course, I don't agree with all of them, but I'm willing to put that aside because I think at least it's settled. We don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And in my head, I'm, I'm imagining like when you get to like writing a, like writing anything by committee or doing anything by committee yeah. where anytime there's like um, something about which people could disagree, there's an effort to kind of achieve consensus and it adds this layer of complex, you know, like, so, cause I wanted to tra- transition to writing. Cause one of the things I wanted to say about this 
this uh, essay that you wrote is that it's just really beautifully written. It's, it's very clear. It's simple. It's a pleasure to read. It really is. And I know that's one of your, you know, the, you know, you teach that, David, right? And, and I want to get your views on like how to think about um, teaching student writing. I know we don't have a lot of time, but if there was like one message that you want to send to students about like how to think about legal writing, how to emulate you in this piece. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the, the speech that I give students on the, on the first day of class in my legal writing class is that there's a big shift in, in the perspective of a legal writer from maybe writing that they did in undergrad. And in undergrad, I think a lot of students come into my class where they are writing where the audience is an expert and the audience is someone who is knowledgeable and their job in writing is to prove to them that they're as smart as the expert. And so a lot of these things have page minimums. They need to make it to 25 pages. They need to have a bunch of sources to show. They need to show off that they did all the reading and also they did extra reading. So they include a bunch of extra source material. Um, They wanna show that they are able to use the jargon, um, that they're able to speak in the language of the expert. And I think they've been trained to do that. They've been rewarded for that. And what I try to do on that first day is just to alter that shift and say, you are the expert now. I'm going to assume, I'm not reading your paper to check that you've read all the cases, that you understand the holdings in all the cases. I'm going to assume you've done all the reading. I'm going to assume you've done extra reading. I'm going to assume you've done all the research. Your job is to boil that down and explain it in a way that's going to make sense to someone who has never read any of the cases, is not familiar with it. I try to put them in in the mindset of you're sitting around the table at a family dinner and you're talking to your your mom and and she's she's a smart person, um, but she is not an expert in the Washington law of covenants not to compete, which is what we're working on now in my class. And you got to explain it to her in a way that that she's going to be able to follow along and, and make sense and make sense of what what you're saying. Um, and I think students have a hard time with that one because they've been trained to try to prove how smart they are in their writing. And and secondly, and I take a little issue with with Judge Posner's recent book where he blames legal writing instructors for some of the clunky jargon writing that students do and young lawyers do. When students start in their 1L year, those common law cases that they're reading are often written in a terribly just opaque, jargon-filled way. And they're, they're, they're taught that this is how the law is written. And the job of the lawyer is to dig in there and try to figure out the kernel of holding and try to understand it. And that it's supposed to be difficult. And I think they get reinforced that that's what they're supposed to write like. And, and a lot of my time is spent Hey, you know, when you read Penoyer v. Neff, don't write that way. <laughs> uh, I know that's what you're spending your time on in Pro, but don't write that way for me. Just write simply. I think that's hard for a lot of folks, but that's what I try to try to get them to do. You know what I love about this, David? Like, like all humans, I think what I love about this is that it totally reinforces my priors. And yeah. uh, <laughs> it pretty much sounds it like it's a good I, feeling. Isn't it, it is what I tell my students too. maybe, maybe not as eloquently, but it is, um, uh, I try to tell them essentially that to write, and this is true in my legal theory class too, right? Whether you're doing more academic writing or you're writing a brief or, or what have you, that you are a teacher, right? You have to assume, as you say, that the person on the other side is a, is a student. They're a consumer of your writing because they want to know something. Right. And yeah. your job is to tell them in the best possible way to plan for how someone who doesn't know this will be able to incorporate right. it into their existing body of knowledge most easily. I don't say it that way, but, but it is exactly And I have exactly never that made that, this, that contrast with sort of college, yeah, exactly, sort of yeah. mainstream college, bad habit writing that could be occurring. And David, you just described it so well and concisely, and, now I'll, and I'll never forget it because now you've, you've really connected it for me. 
Because you're right, it's a total inversion. As a it possible turns everything source, upside down. Yeah, as, a, as, as the college experience or even high school as a source of students being taught to try to sound smart or try to sound expert or to emulate the master rather than just, right. you know, I, you probably tell your students this too, Joe. I know I, know I do. It's like, don't, don't try to be, just tell me as if I were sitting across from you you know, right. in a restaurant and, and just right. talk yeah. to me. And then, and then you can make it more elegant. I mean, I think there's a role for elegance, but usually elegance involves simplicity and design rather than obscuring, right. Or making more complex. Uh, some ideas are just hard. And, you know, I, I struggle with trying to make things as simple as possible. And still sometimes they come across as complex and, and, and maybe that's, you know, sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes I could do better, but, but it is a struggle that we all, we all have. And you certainly carried it off uh, you, you have very, very well in this, in this little piece, David. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's, it's most of the people who've read it. Um, the, I think the nicest thing people have said was I'm, I, I was ready to hate it. And I'm surprised that I actually finished a, a <laughs> book review about the, the blue book. So I feel like that's, that's about as good as I could hope for. So thank you. I do have to say though, I did not check your blue booking. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so the and so I the tended, to, I tended on, to skip over some of the footnotes as well. So yeah, that's fine. I mean, I tried to have a little fun in the footnotes. Uh, so some of them are non-standard. I I have one citation that says, "But don't see." I did see that uh, one. Something yeah. that I don't recommend. There's so. good stuff in the footnotes. There is. I think there's one that's missing the word "not." But um, oh, did you find an error? And I will email that. Uh, okay, probably, thank you. Probably not. Uh, uh, given that how careful it was done, carefully it no, was done. No, no, no. Um, the, the, but, the, but the, other... side, the, the draft on SSRN says it, blue booking is still in progress and I've, I've definitely found errors, so I'm still working on it. The, the, real, the real missed opportunity I saw was you make the point uh, when you're discussing optimality that uh, just because there, uh, something has a declining marginal utility right. uh, doesn't mean uh, you should in, invest zero in it. Right. The, the beauty thing would have been a citation to an opinion by Judge Posner making that <laughs> very point, um, since you're criticizing him in the other footnotes before and after it. Do you have a case it in mind? For making, have... Yeah, it's called Rockwell Graphics. It's a oh, okay. trade secret case where he makes this point about investing in precautions that guard secrets. And it's literally the point made in the book. Oh, wow. That might be a little too aggressive for me as a, uh, as a, although, you know, Judge Posner and I technically have the same title. We're both senior lecturers, I think, is our title. So, <laughs> so pretty much the same. And, and if you think that is more aggressive than most of the other things you said in the piece already, <laughs> I want to encourage you to reread it um, <laughs> because it is quite a takedown. Uh, of, of the crotchety crankiness that uh, Judge Posner is increasingly turning out these Do days. Do you know the other, the other correction that I have to the piece that kind of works against my position, although I would argue not really, is that... <laughs> surprise, surprise. Well, the... the <laughs> <laughs> uh, David cites to our show. He does, you know, Which true. I think is, which automatically... Twice. Uh, yeah. Automatically pole vaults the piece to the top of totally. the pieces I've read this year. <laughs> but but uses the old link, you know, because we just moved our website. Yeah, but I sent him the new one. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just saying in the in the version that I read. Now, the the benefit is, of course, all, that will just automatically redirect to the new. Oh, link. Oh yeah, yeah, you're talking yeah. about broken links. It's broken, you're, you're yeah, talking yeah. about yeah, link yeah. rot. So it just shows. It's, you know, we're it living shows through Christian's link rot. <laughs> now, what you know, what the Columbia Law Review used to do to deal with that was whenever there was anything that was available online. We would download it and then save it in our archives. So we would <laughs> we would never rely on anything. So they would have had an MP3 version on their server um, in perpetuity to avoid any link rot problems. The Supreme Court's doing this now, right? Nice. Can yeah. we do that? I, th- I think that came up in the last show we did on this. I oh, think I the Supreme remember. Court is yeah. For every case, if they cite things online, there's a separate oh directory where you can go in and see these things. Cool. You know, as they existed. 
a museum of the world as it existed at the time of the opinion, I guess. I feel like this is going to be in a Neil Stevenson novel at some point about the future and everything's decayed, and but there are these servers that have stuff on them. But the blue book remains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, this has been... It's been a pleasure and a awesome, wonder. And we could, we could go on for even longer about the blue book, but we will save that for our part two and three of the... David Ziff Chronicles. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me on. This was a, a good time and a good distraction.